If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Lucy, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 146 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. So great to have you back for what is going in the books as a legendary classic conversation for the ages. I couldn't be more excited to let you know that comedian Robert Klein is joining me today. That's right. Legendary stand-up comedian, singer, actor, one of the most prolific voices in comedy is here hanging with me on the Classic Conversations podcast. I know. Pinch me. We talk about comedy, Broadway, acting. You're going to love it. And it's coming up in just a few seconds. And in those seconds, while you wait with bated breath for my conversation with Robert Klein, let me remind you of last week's amazing episodes, episode 145 with Jim Meskimen, master improv impressionist, happens to be Marion Cunningham, that's right, Mrs. C from Happy Days, that happens to be Jim's mom, but Jim's amazing, it's such a fun interview, and then of course episode 144 from last week, Peter Macon, who plays Lieutenant Commander Bordis on the Orville, one of my favorite shows, that's a fabulous conversation as well, so much fabulousness awaits you, enjoy Robert Klein, and then check out the whole backlog. Tons of great interviews await you. But right now, here's an amazing interview with Robert Klein. One thing to note, Robert took the interview from outside his beautiful home. So if you close your eyes, you can hear all the birds singing during the interview. So feel free to head to Twitter and hashtag Classic Conversation Birds. And if you recognize any of the bird sounds, let us know what birds you think they were. (laughs) All right, enjoy. All right, my next guest, you may have seen him on The Tonight Show, or David Letterman. He's been nominated for two Emmys, two Grammys, a Tony. He's had nine HBO specials. Singer, actor, Broadway star. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, legendary stand-up comedian Robert Klein. Welcome to the show. Yes. (laughs) Thought I'd give myself an entrance. So you, all the people you named that I, you, you can see me on a dead. I mean, no, Letterman's alive, but you know what I mean. Right, right, right. But those are, those are the, those are the big shows. Like those are the big credits. I was like <laughs> trying to bring it. Well, I did from, um, three months ago, three year, years ago, which I, I, it's like before pandemic, I guess just before the, maybe two and a half years ago. And they gave me a, a plaque with all the dates of my tonight shows and they were 94 that includes about 15 guest hosts with johnny most of them with johnny carson a few with leno and a few with well yeah i saw the i saw the, uh the clip where jimmy fallon gave you that plaque that was pretty cool yeah i saw him the other night at billy crystal's broadway opening which is very funny and he gave me a big hug and then i think he tested positive uh-oh yeah I have, you know, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm 80 and I have chronic bronchitis because I smoked cigarettes uh, for 30 years, not in 25 or 30 years. I haven't gotten it. And I, I had a wonderful plague. Uh, most people, I feel sorry for the world, especially young people. But for me, it was perfect. I didn't have to do anything. I was working a lot just before and then was able to do, you've heard that cliche, read all the things I didn't have a chance to before. That's sure. been my passion reading. Awesome. Yeah, I think the pandemic and my family and myself, we were fortunate enough to not to get it. I think my daughter maybe got it late, but one after many boosters where it wasn't as as harsh. But thankfully, everybody, we all came through. I started this podcast because of the pandemic. So there you go. 
I appreciate you hanging with me on my, on my podcast. It's uh, it's an honor. There's a lot I want to talk about. I want to talk about they're playing our song. I obviously want to talk about comedy. I want to talk about when comedy went to school. Documentary, I watched that. And then your doc, the documentary on you, Robert Klein, Still Can't Stop His Leg. That's a beauty, I wish. Unfortunately, it was produced by the Harvey Weinstein Company. And it's in litigation at the moment. It may be available on Star's app or something. Isn't it a good, a good film of that documentary? I loved it. It was a great documentary. And there's absolutely no shortage of people saying a million nice things about you. All well deserved. But yeah, it was it was awesome. I found it online somewhere. I watched it online. No kidding. Yeah, I'm I, glad these people can see it. But I always knew he was a louse. You know, he was a tough guy, Weinstein. I, I also did a movie for him uh, with Pacino called People I Know, very dark movie. We had a s- small opening night party, very small, because he was putting all his money into The Aviator, which was a wonderful movie. And uh, I said, um, how's Eve? Eve was his first wife, who I worked with on my A&E show years ago. And suddenly everyone stiffened. I didn't know. I was the only one who know, didn't know he was in a terrible divorce with her. Then he burst out laughing. Oh, she's fine, Robert. She's fine. I found pictures smiling with him. I found the one with uh, a symposium I did with Cosby. I have Andrew Cuomo. All the evil ones are, are staying in the bin. And I, uh, Trump came to the uh, L.A. Film Festival, I, a film I did, Iron Abbey. And he took a picture with Judith Light and myself. And I have it hanging with a tremendous mustache uh, on, on it. It's complete. It's a nightmare. I can't even read the Times much anymore. Nightmare. Go ahead. No, no. Let's look back on happier times. How does it feel to be such an inspiration to all the, you know, the comics of today that they all look back and Letterman, John Stewart, Mike Binder, you know, everyone, Billy Crystal, you know, everyone. They just. I feel like. What did you call me? Uh, you want a, a uh, inspiration? Inspiration. Yeah. I feel like an inspiration. <laughs> You know, Leno summed it up best in that documentary when he said, you know, when you live in Western Massachusetts and you want to go into comedy, people commiserate with your mother. You know, like, is he still into that comedy thing? Point to Robert Klein. He went to college. He's kind of normal. He's not one of those comedians with a tuxedo and cufflinks, you know, and blah, 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 blah and all that. So um, I think I don't know if I invented anything different, but I decided to apply intelligence and some sort of social eyes and political eyes, you know, uh, to what I did. Political thing was raging during Watergate. That was quite a while. And I think my second album, Mind Over Matter, is is there's a lot of Watergate stuff on there. But I always had opinions. I also, when I was hired, for example, a daytime show outdoors, Six Flags Over Georgia, outside of Atlanta, about 4,000 people, front row, bunch of off-duty cops with their four-year-old daughters on their laps. I couldn't do, uh, you know, Len- to quote Lenny Bruce, the fag at the ball game routine, you know. So uh, if I was hired, if I took a job, I liked pleasing them. And so I wouldn't suddenly break into some sort of uh, political material and in a thing like that but i always liked in my day pushing the envelope because everything goes today and partly that's something i had something to do with because i did the first hbo special ever and that was the first uh, original programming hbo ever did they only had movies and no one else had comedy specials where you could say what you wanted and how long and i might add as someone who isn't uh, Spielberg. I had complete final cut on the nine specials I did. And I did a couple of extra ones, a couple of others, but they never censored a word. But all the Tonight Shows and Merv Griffin shows and Letterman's and everything. Well, not Letterman so much. Tonight Show in the old days, they wanted to know everywhere you're going to say pretty much. You knew what the rules were. In the documentary, uh, Seinfeld said you were the, the Beatles of comedy to him and credited you with starting a whole new way of comedy. Who were your inspirations when you were starting to say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm starting to create my voice. Like, who inspired you? I saw live comedy for the first time in the Catskill Mountains, the so-called Borscht Belt, which that documentary you mentioned when comedy went to school is about. Um, when my father had a good year, we spent two weeks in a crummy little broken down hotel and a live comedian came and he made everyone laugh. And yeah, that was fun. And then, of course, every comedian I saw on television, on Ed Sullivan when I was a kid or, you know, Red Buttons and Lucy. I loved 
I love to laugh. I love comedy. I would say the ones who influenced me the most that seemed to take stand up, hey, yeah, it's some sort of nuthatch. You hear it? Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, were uh, Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters, who were, one was a social satirist and, and pushed the envelope hard. And the other one was apolitical. Jonathan wasn't particularly political. They were both the farthest thing from conventional you could think of. I never met Lenny Bruce. He died a year before my first trip to L.A. in 67. But I did have a a correspondence and a bit of a relationship at the end of Jonathan's life. And I spoke at his memorial. He was an improvisational genius. Of course, in person, he was salty and he could be totally profane, but that's not what he did in public. So I say the combination of those two. And as far as, you know, like the best I have ever seen in person, and I, I would put Pryor in there. Uh, George was fantastic. I never actually saw George in person. I mean, I, I had a relationship with him. I participated in an HBO uh, documentary that's coming out soon. Uh, and uh, I have an interview to do tomorrow with Vanity Fair about the, uh, the documentary about him. Both of these guys were funny before they became the hipper version of themselves. Carlin was hilarious as the hippy-dippy weatherman and his early stuff wearing his suit and tie. He quit or was thrown out of Cardinal Hayes High School, which New Yorkers know is hard to do. That was a tough school. Uh, he joined the Air Force. He was what Rodney Dangerfield used to call a rounder, you know, like, you know, I didn't go to college or anything like that. He just went down. And prior, I first met at the Improv in the fall of 66 uh, or 67, and he was doing the Merv Griffin show in collegiate sweaters. He was adorable. He was, you you wanted to hug him, and he was hilarious. Now, that doesn't mean that I I in any way uh, uh, don't like what they became because they found themselves tumultuous terrible year of 68 with all the assassinations of, of, of Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, riots. It's not that he came back as civil rights spokesman strongly like the great, I'm sorry, names and nouns is the only thing. I can memorize lines and everything. The, the one oh. from Chicago uh, who stopped being a comedian, he was hilarious and became a social satirist. I'll think of it in a minute, but uh, that's two things I have to think of in a minute. <laughs> uh, but he came back because I once asked him like, what college did you go to? You know, <laughs> He laughed for five minutes. We brought up in a brothel and carlin you know came back you know ponytail and whatever and some hilarious stuff including his greatest greatest triumph is his routine went to the supreme court seven words you could say you can't say on television just want to take a quick break thank everyone for their support of the sponsors when you support the sponsors you're supporting us here at classic conversations and that's how we keep the lights on now back to the amazing robert klein as he continues to reflect on george carlin at the end there was a kind of darkness there when i saw him we did this thing for seinfeld and he he was um i don't know he got kind of dark like uh, maybe after Brenda, his wife died. I don't know. I keep in touch with Kelly, his daughter, and a little bit with Rain Pryor. I'm very close with Rodney Dangerfield's daughter, Melanie. He was my Yale drama school for stand-up comedy. Rod, not only was he one of the greatest comedians of all time, especially in his early career when this, this stuff was less vulgar and whatever, but he knew what he was talking about. And I remember his mother had deserted him pretty much. And they had a kind of rapprochement on the beat. The old man was dying of throat cancer and wasn't a big star yet. But I remember the old man who had been in vaudeville, had been an entertainer of some sort, not a comedian, who had that uh, no respect thing. That's good. Keep it up, that no respect. And he did, like, to be every man. Your relationship with Rodney, though, extended. He was one of the very first comedians you met, right? Outside of when you were doing Second City and... And maintained a really well. Long Second City was the most important thing to happen to me. That in the Yale Drama School, and my father didn't have to pay tuition. I got 150 a week. Came home from Second City. We did a four or five week show, and I heard. And then I got the first Broadway show I ever auditioned for, Apple Tree. Mike Nichols directing. I heard about the Improv down 44th Street from the Schubert Theater. I went down because I was bursting to do stand up. And Alan Alda and Barbara Harris and the whole cast came to, down to give me support. And I killed them. You know, I, I, I was really good, about 15, 20 minutes. And this guy came up to me, you know, I'll tell you, you, know, you were brilliant, okay? You, know, you were fucking brilliant. He said he was incredibly profane. 
He said, now you have to come back every night for three years to get it right. Anyway, I began coming there a lot. And I saw a woman comedian there with her husband with a tape recorder. I said, what a great idea. That was Joan Rivers and her husband, Edgar. Record it. You know, and, and originally, my whole early career was defined by the diminution in the size of recording devices. I had a wallen sack, weighed 25 pounds, then a small reel-to-reel, then audio cassette, then a phone. <laughs> <laughs> Would you tape every one of your performances? Bob Stein, who's been working with me for 38 years, produced my last four HBO specials. He's a brilliant musician, conductor, composer. He would record every show uh, until a few years ago. I, I have literally hundreds of tapes. And there's a company that's trying to take that stuff. Some of it, some of it has been appearing on serious radio, like never before heard stuff. Because a lot of it was well recorded. Some of it is not worth because of the sound quality. But, you know, when I was improvising and some stuff I may never have done again. And so, yes, there's tons and tons of stuff. There's also two NBC specials that I own from 1981 that were on four-inch tape, four-inch wide tape, old videotape wow. before digitalization. They've all been digital, digitalized to see if they can make some money. They're sitting collecting dust, as I am. <laughs> um, no, actually, I'm in uh, very good shape. My greatest investment, I've been working out with a trainer three times a week for 31 years. Yeah, you guys stay healthy. You look great. You do. I've not been the greatest in the old days. I did cocaine in the 80s. Uh, I've been uh, consuming cannabis for 55 years or so. But, you know, I didn't care much for drinking in a lot of my life. And then later on, I did care for some drinking. By and large, the keeping in shape, working in one as a comedian, also uh, movies and television. I mean, just before the, the uh, epidemic, I did... Uh, Will and Grace, number of episodes. I have no problem memorizing lines, you know, but it's, you know, I'd rather not, I, I, I would rather be alive than dead, but getting old and, uh, you know, it, it definitely, that you can get into the movies cheaper <laughs> and you're first in line for a vaccine and uh, you can have much more pati patience uh, during a pandemic. But other than that, man, it's nothing. I look, my hand looks like the, an aerial map of the Mississippi and its tributaries. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's tough. You look great. I got to say your hair looks great too. So there you got that. <laughs> Just wait a minute. I didn't think this was this kind of show. That's getting personal. Uh, I refuse to diet. <laughs> I, I, I have to laugh at contemporaries of mine who should have nice gray hair and it's jet black, you know, or have lifts on there on their faces. I, you know, women want to do that, but when men do it, I don't know. I don't know. Every, everyone can do whatever they want. I've been divorced for 33 years. I was married 16. I have a terrific son who's 38 and all the talent to be a comedian or an actor, but he's a chef. So there you go. Then he worked in environmental studies and then worked for Bobby Kennedy's Waterkeeper Alliance for eight years. And Bobby Kennedy is a disastrous disappointment to those of us that used to love him and care about him because he's an anti-vax nut now, which I don't understand at all. The whole thing of, of the health issues becoming politicized is so stupid. It's like Chinese cultural revolution where the students took over the medical school and threw out the, and the teachers went to be slave farmers in the collectives because they know better. I mean, you know, what are these idiots talking about? going against the best medical advice. You know, they tout, even though a lot of Americans can't afford health care, we always tout, especially the right wing, of the greatest health care in the world. So why don't you depend on them? Dr. Fauci became an enemy. And, you know, they were also boogieing to find out what's the next iteration of this disease. I mean, I would say the response, for the most part, since they didn't know where they were going, there was some experience with Ebola, but uh, the whole thing of, of uh, he's taking books out of the library. If your kids don't want to, if you don't want your kids to read them, don't read them. Don't take them out of the library. People are afraid. They don't look around them. But America has always been about immigrants. You know, Ross Douthout in the New York Times is this Catholic convert, you know, uh, conservative. He's a very good writer and a bright guy, but he laments that the American birth rate is so low. So why don't you encourage these people legally let them in to the country from Mexico and Honduras? 
The American history is replete with bigotry. I guess maybe it's a continuum. I'm surprised, though. I thought we were really going places, especially uh, after the 89 end of communism, which I thought would never come in Europe. Uh, what was your question? How, what my favorite color? I believe it was what my um, if I were if I were yeah, to be the, was, person, was, what's the your last point? person in the world, what I would want to eat. No, I'm afraid I my answer was so uh, long. It's a, it's an interesting time we live in with everyone not knowing what to trust because the people at the top have put that in everyone's head and made it so divided. You know, to make something like vaxing a political thing. You know, you have if you watch Fox, that's what you believe, and they feed you. And if you watch MSNBC, they feed you. And you know, this the whole thing with uh, Facebook with the, when the old 2016 election with the manipulation of of what you see. Social media has made things very scary and put people down this all their own thought path and just pit so one one thing I, other, I, so. uh, must, I must comment on you made an equal uh, kind of comparison between Fox and MSNBC. There is nothing compared to Fox. Yes, MSNBC is so you can't say liberal anymore, progressive more. It's still it's um, guests and also paid guests are some of the most eminent historians in America and they they're much more honest. No, I didn't mean I don't I didn't mean to put them on the same thing. What I meant was Fox helps people who think the Fox way think more about the Fox way and MSNBC is is where we go to be reinforced with our beliefs. I, I think the MSNBC isn't trying to destroy the world, but <laughs> Fox anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, yeah. right. It's hard for me to any of them now, but yeah. I don't know. Americans lost control. Uh, Larry King, uh, he died, of course, but he actually had a program on RT television. A few Americans went on RT, which was Russian propaganda television. What's the matter with them? Do they think the Democrats, and I'm not even giving money so far, I, I'm disgusted too. Am I more, I'm a more, there's nothing proud about being a Democrat or a Republican. Two party system is supposed to be something that grinds along and keeps things moving. There used to be a certain amount of comity and civility in the Congress in the uh, mid-20th century and on. There was also duels on the fly. There was a lot of hatred in the Congress. But this idea of um, not... A democracy is so tenuous. There's this idea that if A wins the election and B says, no, you didn't, even though the usual methods have been used for counting, we're done. And, you know, you have a president, former president Trump, standing next to Putin saying his own intelligence told him they interfered in our election. He said, Putin said, no, we didn't. He said, see, I have no reason to doubt him. Why isn't that on every television show, every ad now? Why is, you know, the word traitor comes to mind. And also, I've been saying for years, this Confederate nostalgia. Uh, I myself, a history student, didn't even realize Fort Bragg, where almost every troop goes to train, is named after a Confederate general. They were traitors, T-R-A-I-T-O-R-S. And they were traitors after the Civil War. People called them traitors. And if Lincoln hadn't been assassinated, things might have been different. Those statues of Confederate and, and all that stuff was put up in the 1890s, 1920s. They were traitors. They're not, you know, and, and the Confederacy is repeating itself again. As soon as the voting rights law was gutted, they went back to the same old thing of making it a di more difficult to vote. I think 53% of people said in a, in a uh, survey by someone reputable that democracy is not necessarily the best form of government. You know, things are changing. But I hate to patronize you, Jeff, but go Tigers. Go Detroit Tigers. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Hank Greenberg. So, all right, let, let's, um, let's pivot away from... What do you do, Dwaskit, when you're not doing this? Yeah. What do I do? I have a, my own company called Stampede Social. And we build engagement tools for Instagram to help people monitor and measure their engagement through tools that we created. I really, uh, you explained to do, and it sounds to me like it's covering for something illicit. So go, let's go to the next subject. I don't understand a <laughs> word you said. Go ahead. No politics. Go ahead. All right, let's go back to a simpler time. Let's go back to the the cat skills and like in that documentary, but also you were there, right? I mean, you, you were a bus boy. You I was a bus boy, a lifeguard and a day camp counselor 
in the Catskills, but I never played it as a performer until I was quote unquote a star. The top places, the Concord, Cutchers, those were big paychecks, a limo to and from, you know, the biggest stars played it, those places. It was, it started probably the turn of the 20th century in the middle of that wonderful immigration period when my grandparents came from Hungary in 1903, when people in the hot city went to Sullivan County because it was cool in the summer and some Jewish farmers would open up their houses to take them people to stay for a week. And it ballooned into hotels of all sizes and bungalow colonies. The thing that several things killed it, uh, the Boeing 707 was one because people could go to Paris with their family for two weeks for about the same money as three or four weeks in a Catskill hotel and also air conditioning. (laughs) Uh, Sad to say now it's, of course, uh, a non-existent. They were hotel mostly kosher, meaning that the breakfast and lunch meals did not contain meat. And the evening meal did. And it was generally entertainment, roller skating act, spinning each other, you know, Lithuanian uh, refugees and the woman having three G's on her face as her husband spun her by her teeth and comedians fledgling, very often bad. Some of them starting out singers, always a singer. And the food was the, the key thing because it was all you could eat. It wasn't a buffet, but I mean, if you couldn't decide between chicken and, and brisket, you'd take both. That sounds like heaven to me. It was. A lot of people met their spouses there. My sister met her her husband there. And, you know, most of the people went, they weren't religious, but it was a tradition for the kosher. So uh, uh, and then there was also the Italian Alps, they call it. Jewish Alps, the Italian Alps. It was some Hotels, a couple still exists where more of an Italian flavor and Italian, but comedy and the Catskill Mountains resorts went together, and a lot of people began their careers there, notably Jerry Lewis and you know Danny Kay, and they would have shows, they'd put together shows, there were a few of them in the Poconos as well, and a lot of sex, at least uh, imagined sex. Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation. I know, I know. We were right in the middle of the sex part. But quick break, and we're back. That was painless, right? This is the last break, I promise. Now back to Robert Klein and all the sex at the Catskill part that I interrupted. Enjoy. In that documentary, Larry King talks about how he uh, stooped some housewife whose husband was away for the week at home plate on the softball field or something. That's kissing and telling. I don't care. Even though he was eight times, Larry. Definitely a a highlight of the documentary was Larry King's sex life. (laughs) I know. I went with my book, uh, uh, The Amorous Busboy of Decatur Avenue. It came out about, what, 12 years ago? So Simon and Schuster. So I was on a book tour and... His assistant was the most thorough pre-researcher I think I ever had. I get on with him. He goes, what a read, Robert Klein, uh, Amherst Busquay. Uh, um, uh, tell me, what, what did he choose his color with the raised lettering? I could tell he hadn't read it. You know, what about the copyright, Robert? Right here. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he mentioned the first two pages and the dedication. I knew he hadn't read it. That's really funny. Go ahead, Waskin. Take control here. What else? Thank you. Thank you. Catskills. So anyone listening... We may not be familiar. Dirty Dancing, a couple episodes, really, some of the best episodes from Mrs. Maisel <laughs> took place in the Catskills. Of those fictional recreations, how, how accurate were those? I didn't see it. I saw Dirty Dancing. It was sweet. I only saw the first two episodes of Maisel. I just did a movie with the guy who plays the husband, Michael. Um, I had a reshoot. They needed a reshoot, I mean, to add two scenes four months after they wrapped. I didn't, I didn't see the Maisel um, Bush Belt episodes, but um, Dirty Dancing was sweet. You know, there was a, a, a also a, a famous athletic component uh, with respect to Cutcher's Country Club, which was one of the bigger hotels. There's a famous picture with uh, Will DeSil Chamberlain, who would go work as a busboy. A lot of the best collegiate players would go up to Cutcher's and work for the summer as bellhops and play ball. And there were some incredible games in the old days. So there was that too, that kind of shorts and sweat socks and handball. And, but mostly it was eating. That was the rare part. But mostly it was eating. People who, and they were a tough audience, 10 o'clock at night at the Concord, 
They had just had a tremendous meal, which ended at nine, and then they come in belching at ten for the show. It's tough. <laughs> that does sound tough, right? <laughs> it was. It was definitely a really good documentary. It's not. It wasn't even that long. It was. I found it on a PBS. It's like right. It like Fifty. It's a ton of PBS app. It was really interesting. It was like so. Basically, the Grossingers. Yeah. Grossingers basically inadvertently started the first Airbnb. <laughs> Right. Right. Having people at their place, they make $81 and then suddenly they're like, hey, (laughs) and the whole thing kind of blew up around that whole concept. And I mean, the names are crazy. Jerry Lewis and Caesar, Jackie Mason, Mort Saul, Dick Gregory, Jerry Stiller. I mean, it's just, Uh, you know, it it was even um, when Elizabeth Taylor was courting when Eddie Fisher left Debbie Reynolds. Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher would go to uh, Grossinger's all the time. There was there was an airport. They had their own airport, private little planes. They weren't jets then, but it, it was bigger than just the Jewish population. I mean, people would go to Grossinger's or Concord, not Jewish, for you know great Latin music and Machito and Tito Puente played uh, the Concord regularly. But it, it's it's dead. Some photographer did a beautiful collection of. The, the wreck it is now, like lumber hanging down. I understand there's a big resort up there now that allows gambling. There's a golf course. And, you know, I, it's it's dead. It's something that just lived and died. It outlived its usefulness. The Grossinger, uh, I'm sorry, the Kutcher grandson tried to open a restaurant in Tribeca, which lasted maybe a year, with some of the recipes, with fancy names, uh, actually, it was the, I had a very good meal there. I reviewed it for Gotham Magazine. That kind of food is, is, is it's tough to find anymore. All the Jewish women that cooked it are dead. And the people they taught, too, are, you know, it's just it's not around anymore. It was part of what helped inspire you, right? Working there, seeing these comics. and Well, when I saw these comedians pull up in his Cadillac and get out and make people scream with laughter for 35 minutes, And for that 35 or 40 minutes, they forgot their troubles with their marriage or their health or their children. I said, boy, that's a wonderful way to make a living, isn't it? Making people laugh. I still consider it a higher calling. I think it's one of the, my father always wanted me to be a doctor. And I thought I I wanted that too. A few things got in my way. Uh, Organic chemistry, calculus, physics, zoology, reading, spelling, comprehension, behavior aptitude, <laughs> attitude, and talent. So I became an actor. And he once I was called down to do an interview when I was on Broadway and they're playing a song to the Today Show, Gene Shalit interviewing me. My father was visiting from Florida. They had retired to Florida, which is unusual for him. <laughs> and um, he came with me. And Shalit said, after my interview, he said, look, we're doing a thing of parents. And, and Lucy Arnaz, who co-starred with me, had just done with her, one with her mother, Lucy, of all. And so he interviewed my father. He said, Mr. Klein, did he always want to be a, a, an actor? He said, no, he wanted to be a doctor. I figured by the time he becomes one, I'll be old enough to need one. And now when I get, he became an actor. Now when I get sick, he gives me two tickets to a show. And uh, that's in the documentary. In fact, it was incredibly thrilling to hear my father's voice and seen, you know, like that as live like that in a number of years. And he had Charlotte really screaming. I just think it's, it's a wonderful thing to make people laugh and to do it on terms of one's own. I mean, look, Profanity is a very important part of the language. Uh, the great authors used it, but when it's apt, when it when it's the right word at the right time, not every other word. I, I do uh, have a problem with some of the profanity today, vulgarity, and anything goes kind of thing. I have no interest in censoring anybody. It's just my own personal opinion. You censor with not buying a ticket or changing the channel. But, you know, I think a lot of the older comedians always felt it was a badge of honor. They they did it, you know, like it, winters could be incredibly dirty in, in company, but he was so hilarious in public without being that way. There's a certain, I'm sort of a cross between the old and the new. And I will, depending on the audience, I will use a plain word here and there, but just, I don't know. It still makes me uncomfortable. It's still a kind of, I don't know. I just don't hold it. It's become the vernacular now. In other words, people use it all the time in, 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 in every way, much more than they did. That's all. And No, I understand, I understand what you're saying. If it's the punchline, that's not good. You know, but I mean, just to use a word. You know, to, no, to use, if it's that, it's as just as like, 
nobody cares. It's every other word, you know. A guy's motherfucker doesn't even come in. You know, I mean, it's not racial. It's all you know, white or black comedians, male or female. It's the style, and sometimes it can be very funny. I remember curb your enthusiasm, where Paul Sand played a, a chef with the Tourette syndrome, and he kept on spouting these obscenities. It was hilarious. It was totally hilarious. I just read a book, uh, Oliver Sacks. Remember the film Awakenings? He wrote that book. He was a brilliant neurophysicist, scientist, doctor, MD. He died a few years ago. It was called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And it was a lot about Tourette's and the different kinds of... I think there is a left-handed hitter on the Yankees who may have a form of it. Gallo, he keeps striking out. <laughs> he keeps on, you know, he has these little odd twitches. Uh, I, uh, I'm not making fun of him. I would like them to trade him to... Maybe to the Tigers. Right. He should get help, and they should replace him with someone who can hit. Yeah. yeah for the good of all. I just, I it. Uh, it was okay. interesting anyway. Right. Uh, so it, it can be funny, and, and uh, I can laugh at, at, at it, but it's just, and the elegance has been lost in, in a way. It's just, they told me to watch some young comedian uh, people. This guy is great, and he's talking for three or four minutes. I forgot who it was. The first laugh is a curse word. I don't agree necessarily that it had, that the punchline is wrong if it's a dirty word, but it still has impact. You see, people still, ooh, right. you know, and I don't mind modernity, and I don't mind a more. You look at court TV or, or one of these murder shows, a real life, and people go to court wearing ripped T-shirts. You know, they don't think maybe you're putting on a nice sweater or a tie or a jacket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's that's it. People walk around in their pajamas. In fact, I'm naked now from the waist down. You can't see that because this is. I'm not wearing pants either. So. Oh my God. Don't tell me this. Today is your, your so, daughter's bringing home a boyfriend for the first time? To meet her sister. Yeah. How old is your daughter? My daughter is 19. Oh, well, that pilot I told you about called Father's Day. I, my daughter was 13 and her first date was coming. It was a cute thing. It didn't fly though, ABC. But that happens a lot though, right? They shoot pilots, they don't happen, right? It's just. Well, for years, I never wanted to do a sitcom. My sit favorite sitcoms were Honeymooners, Phil Silvers, or Sergeant Bilko. I have to admit, all the family was hilarious. I didn't watch them. I've never seen two minutes of Friends or some of the biggest of all time. I just didn't like the concept joke, laugh, joke, laugh. So initially, early in my career, I turned down the part of, I forget which it was, but opposite Alan Alda in the TV series MASH to play the Wayne Rogers role. Wayne stayed with it one year, became a financial advisor. Um, I'd seen the movie. It was brilliant. I didn't want to do the sitcom. I also was hot as a pistol, making a lot of money as a comedian. I was doing movies. You know, Saturday Night Live, I did the fifth show first year, and then I did 77 two years later. Uh, I was offered When Days Were Rotten to play Robin Hood in a short-lived series. I thought it was him. Mal Brooks. Yeah. He, he, he executive produced it. The movie, Men in Tights, with Richard Lewis was hilarious. But the series, Dick Gaudier play, you know. So I, I turned down some Danny Thomas's son to be a doctor. The one I... I, I decided to do, I read the script, funniest script I read, and my career could have used it then. And my wife was a, an opera singer. And she had a good tour on the West Coast. I said, you want to stay here six, seven months? Because this series, it was night court. It was hilarious. And the judge was the Groucho Marx. He was in charge. So I went to see the, uh, the the guy who wrote it, created it, Reinhold Wiggy. At, what a name, Reinhold Wiggy <laughs> at Warner Brothers. Long story short, one of my managers, Charlie Joffe of the team Rollins and Joffe, their names appear on all the Woody Allen movies because they managed Woody for years. He was directing the negotiations. And I think he was heavily into cocaine. And I think he lost perspective because I should have done it. He said, they won't give you more than so-and-so. You know, it was a spit the salary. It was a big salary, but he thought I deserved more. Finally convinced me, ah, the hell with it. Whatever. So he cast a guy, Anderson, who was totally opposite from me. And it was a big hit. What the other characters were important, Harry Anderson, right? You know, a slight regret because I think I could have really done something with that, but I never cared. And then older, since 2001, I did two series, one with Jason Alexander called Bob Patterson, which was hilarious but which ABC shot 10 of and 9-11 didn't do it any good. Uh, although, you know, I hate to sound petty that 9-11 that did a lot of people a lot of good. He was amazing, Jason, but he tried to do too much. He was running things and 
writing and doing it. He was wonderful and what a talent. Uh, it was not a Seinfeld curse. It was just, you know, the wrong writers and a bunch of things. And the other one was more recent for CBS, maybe, I don't know, eight years ago or something with Judith Light called The Stones for CBS and also ran 10 episodes. The pay was tremendous. And they both were in California. I was happy to get home, to be honest with you. So I have a movie currently on uh, Amazon Prime, which is very good. And I recommend it. It's called Before I Go. And it was done before the pandemic. Myself and Annabella Sciorra, who many people remember from Sopranos and also from her horrible confrontation with uh, Harvey Weinstein. She claimed to have been raped by him, and I have no doubt. But her career went downward, and she's really a lovely person and a wonderful actor. And it's a good movie. We shot it on the uh, Manhattan on location. I'll check that out. So before I go, the one I just finished is called Zoo, but I mean, they may change the, the title. Well, I'll tell you what, one of my favorite movies that you're in and that I share with my kids and we love watching the whole series. Don't laugh. Sharknado. <laughs> love it. Love Sharknado. You got a call from my agent. Sharknado 2. Donald Trump promised to, to play the mayor of New York and he finked out on us six days before. Can you do it? I said, all right. I had had shoulder surgery. I had a torn uh, rotator cuff and the real bitches, the Yankees canceled my contract. God. I thought it was such a cool injury, rotator cuff, but it wasn't. It was painful. <laughs> so uh, I was recuperating from that, but I said, I'll do it. Of course, they handed me a 35-pound saw, buzz saw. <laughs> so because Trump turned it down, I did it. And then I did Sharknado 3, which I was killed in a bloody fashion. Demoted. I just remember the name of the movie I did outside of Detroit. Demoted. Demoted. Yeah. All right, I'll check that out. Too. Oh uh, well, if you check it out, you'll be ahead of me because I haven't seen it. Get killed. <laughs> I get. I die early in the movie. Although I, I think that part is hilarious. Uh, you know who's in it? Patty Duke's son, the one that was in the Hobbit. Oh, Sean yeah. uh, Aston. Sean Aston. Yeah. He's in it, and uh, I forgot who else. And we shot it outside of Detroit, and I got sick. I got the flu or something. I went to a local doctor who refused to charge me, and maybe the movie company paid him. I don't know. But I told him I had a cardiac score of such. He said, that doesn't mean anything, Robert. He said, when a little piece of fat gets stuck in that artery, you're dead. Anyway, I do remember that. And the Michiganders' hospitality. Of course, we would take care of you. So, but it was a, it was a kind of a badge of honor in three Sharknado three to get eaten by a shark. That's what by three everyone wanted to be eaten by a shark. Oh, the Today Show people were there. It was fun. I didn't mind doing it. It was it was absolutely stupid and uh, but super fun. And you were ahead of the curve being in two because I know I talked to the writer and they were like they were they had a hard time pulling in all the things by three, four, five, six. It couldn't keep people away. Maureen Dowd in the New York Times mentioned me as mayor of New York. He said, we're New Yorkers and we can stand up to anything. And so and then she used that to lead into her political article of the week in the New York Times. Uh, that was fun. I mean, uh, the, the highest, the best box office one. I, I mean, I've done over 40 features. I won the Pussycat with Bob Dyson. George Siegel was an early one who was big box office. And I guess Hooper with Burt Reynolds. You know, it was in that Hal Needham directed it. He directed the Smokey and the Bandit ones. It was a similar kind of thing. And I played the kind of evil director. And that was a lot of fun doing that shit kicking in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We shot for a few weeks and then at Universal and then at Warner Brothers in L.A. And, you know, that was the most interesting. Uh, I spent four or five weeks on that movie and it was lots of fun. Talk to me about they're playing our song that you're nominated for a Tony. Like I, I shared with you earlier, I have a, the soundtrack on, on record. Well, we call that original Broadway cast album. The scoring is movies. Movies is different. That's my, I uh, sang for Marvin Hamlish, who uh, I knew, and Neil Simon, who I didn't know. Uh, I got the job. I was already had a reputation. I had been in a few Broadway shows. It had hit written all over it. Hamlish and Carol Bass Sager wrote the lyrics. Neil Simon wrote the book. It was about a uh, kind of neurotic songwriting team, uh, which was based more than loosely on Marvin Hamlish's relationship with Carol Bass Sager. They were living together and they're both neurotic. Marvin died way before his time a few years ago. It was a real shock to all of us. 
it was huge. It was huge. I was nominated for a Tony. There was no chance because that year Sweeney Todd won everything and was more deserving. My my RP, I was terrific in it, I'm sure, but it was fluffy and not likely to win the Tony for me. But it brings to mind because Billy Crystal and I have been texting about his new show, uh, Mr. Saturday Night Musical on Broadway. I said, you have to enjoy it and endure it. Um, I was in uh, seven Broadway shows, well, two closed out of town. I was in two hits that I was in for a year. And that is tough. Saying the same thing every, you know, eight times a week. The only person I've heard agree with that, I mean, publicly is is, is uh, Alan Arkin. We did a Zoom play of two of his pieces about five months ago. I mean, you know, after the first few months, everybody has seen it. You've gotten your reviews, you know, but you got to stay. And uh, it's exhausting mentally and physically. The other one I did for a year was Sisters Rosenzweig by Wendy Wasserstein. It was one of the among the greatest parts of I've ever had. It's just it's a wonderful play. And I knew it was a hit from the start. She also died way before her time. A gentle genius. I loved her. She was very important in writing about women in her plays, the Heidi Chronicles, and among others. Anyway, you know, some wonderful playwrights. Well, they're playing our song. Like you said, uh, to endure it. Yeah, 1,082 performances plus 11 previews I read. That's a lot to do the same thing over. And it, it was really just you and Lucy Arnaz, right? I mean, just it's pretty much a two. No, I couldn't have done that many. It ran that long, but I left after a year. I think Tony Roberts took over. So I did. Okay, okay. Oh, maybe just uh, while well, on Broadway. Weeks, maybe four weeks in California and a year in New York. So you're talking, you know, close to 400 performances. It's enough. <laughs> it is a lot. And then I watched a clip from you at the 1979 Tony Awards of you and Lucy Arnaz. That was a lot of fun to watch. And then you reunited with her years later for a benefit to do it again. Yeah, my oh boy, that was tough because Lucy was wanted me to dance a lot. And I was, this is what, four years ago, <laughs> 76. Is a, we did it for the benefit of the Actors Fund. I never worked so hard for nothing, for no money in my life. It was lots of fun, though. People were crazy about seeing it again. And uh, it was, uh, oh, by the way, in the Tony Awards, I was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical. And if you saw that clip, you know that um, Henry Fonda introduced nominees. So I was backstage uh, and uh, at the awards, and there was Henry Fonda. And I went up to him and said, Mr. Fonda, I'm a great fan. My name is Robert Klein. I'm up for a Tony this year. Walk right past me. Did not ignore. Ouch. That happened only twice in my life. Jackie Gleason and Henry Fonda. And then he goes and introduced me. Robert Klein. I heard my name. That's the truth. And he it was, it's, it's impossible that he didn't see me. And I, it was just, I, I don't want to deal with you and just walk by. And I, I wasn't in the street asking for an autograph. I was like, same thing with Gleason. I was backstage at a special in Vegas and he went right by me. Well, I have a question. All the, the musical background, you're naturally musical. You can sing. Did that help you when you went to Second City? Oh, yeah. I love to do uh, what some people call make a song. I call them song improvs. Bill Matthew was the pianist there and he had classical training too. We'd take a suggestion from the audience of a news event or something and I'd do a Handelian cantata, you know, uh, and uh, I loved it. I loved music there. I loved every part of it. I was learning improvisation and learning how to do a multiple performance of set lines. Because at Second City, you did your regular show every night, same lines. And then you had an improvisation session based on suggestions from the audience. And that's how we developed our new show. So we had three shows a year changing. So you got training in both. And I still write my material or have, have written, you know, about 11 hours of material, initially based for the most part on improvisation. See, George Carlin would write like a playwright. He'd write it out, try it out. Right? So the stage manager of an HBO special would know George's first line and his last line. With me, no, I would do everything. You know, once I have established a certain kind of thing that it took me a long time to get to laugh, not going to change that, but I could change everything. That's what you cannot do when you're an actor in a play or a movie, unless you get permission. Right. You can't change a playwright's words. So, you know, when I am doing my own words, I can change it whenever I want. Yeah, and there is a certain comfort in knowing, give me a mic and a, a light and I can make a living. It's like Archimedes and a place to stand and I can move the world. You know? It's a nice freedom. And then you you joined Second City with Fred Willard. Fred and I, that's where I officially say my showbiz career started, although I had done 
two summers of summer stock. In March of 65, Fred Willard and I reported for work. We had never met. Two months before, we auditioned at the William Morris Conference Room, the agency. We got the job together. And he died last year. When I had dinner with him in California, I knew that was it. I knew I wouldn't see him again. He was very frail. He lived to be 86. He was a genius in his own quiet way. He was amazing. And we kept in touch all these years. I know people I know since I'm 11 that I still keep in touch with. But professionally, you know, it was I joined the company of David Steinberg was there. He was the real star of the place when I got there in Chicago. And then he went off to London to do Second City. And I got a chance to flower with Fred. The, the thing I think it was in your documentary where Fred Willard was telling a story about you. He said that you at one time he saw you just turn it to nothing and kind of improv to someone who wasn't actually there. Yeah. Just turned off stage and talked to a character. You created a, a, a character. And that, that he had never seen that before. And then he later went on to always use that. He would he adopted that. I thought that was great. Well, the, the essence of the improvisation technique taught by Paul Sills and his mother, Viola Spolin, who wrote the improvisation for the theater, was that you don't play right. You don't, when you're, improvising, if I'm improvising with you, I don't go, you know, I uh, I have an uncle in Dallas and I remember when we used to, that's nothing. It's what's now, your glasses, your hat, which I can barely read the thing on. And if you get stuck, you, you open an imaginary cupboard and you take out a ball. In this case, I looked off stage, Willie, what? Will you stop it? You know, and whatever. It was just the most wonderful place to express yourself freely. The head drama coach at Yale, was named Constance, can't remember her last name. She was an old lady. Mr. Klein, you should do a one-man show, you know, <laughs> without the restrictions of someone else's words, I could really go to town. I, in college, we would go to Chicago Second City all the time. And we were from Detroit, but our, we had a good friend in Chicago. And I saw Chris Farley and Tim Meadows at Second City the year before they went to Saturday Night Live. It was something that just stuck in your head when you see someone like that. It was a real theater for Saturday Night Live. Belushi and that group came about four years after me. And I met them when I was playing the uh, huge theater in Toronto, and they all came to see me. And we had an all-nighter after the show with Belushi, Aykroyd. Uh, who's the little sprite that's working with uh, with Steve Martin now? He was there. Marty. Oh, Martin, Martin Marty Short. Short. And that's where I guess I met Gilda, who was adorable. She and Madeline, I was, Madeline Kahn and Peter Boyle were my best, oldest friends in show business, uh, along with Fred. And Madeline and, and Gilda both died of ovarian cancer, two of the funniest women I ever knew. They still don't have a cure for it. She was a sweetheart. She was from Detroit, wasn't she, Gilda? Yeah, we have, uh, a, there's a place called Gilda's Place, or maybe Gilda's House. The uh, It's a whole thing. Gene Wilder might have helped set it up. It's for cancer patients. For cancer patients? For cancer patients. Yeah, I, I wrote a check early in that one. I have a, a picture here that they gave me of her, a beautiful picture. Um, what college did you go to? I went to Eastern Michigan University. Michigan, Eastern Michigan, rah, rah, rah. Never heard of it. I mean, is the Western Michigan, is there a Northern Michigan and a Southern Michigan? There's a Western. And then U of M and MSU are like the big ones. And then, you know, when you don't study as hard. Well, I went to Alfred. You never heard of that. I never heard of that one. I never heard. Oh, hey, when we pre-talked, you promised me a Mike Binder story. Oh, yeah. So I kept a little apartment in L.A. because I went out there frequently. I mean, it wasn't, you know, just it was a little furnished apartment. And I'm driving my car back to the apartment and it's a cul-de-sac. I notice someone's following me. So, you know, I what the hell is this? I don't like this. You know, like an idiot. I get out, slam the door. And look tough. And I go, are you fucking following me? I, I, I didn't say fucking. Are you following me? What's the story? He said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Robert. My name is Mike Binder. I'm just a fan. I wanted to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many years later, I'm walking in front of my apartment in New York. And there's Mike Binder. He said, oh, man, I got a part for you in my new movie. He did uh, Rain Over Me, which was a wonderful movie, which nobody saw. A, a fabulous uh, performance by, uh, what's his name? Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler. He wasn't an idiot for a change. He's a sweet kid. I mean, we did Mixed Nuts together, too, a Steve Martin film. He was wonderful in it. And it was such an interesting film, but I don't think it did very well. Mike was terrific. Very impressive writing that script. 
and the upside of anger. He's also in the documentary saying, if it wasn't for Robert Klein, I think I would have gone into plumbing or something like that. He just was following me when he talked to me. Uh, it's so funny. Yeah, he's great. I love him. My favorite movie of Mike's is Indian Summer, which is basically about Jewish summer camp, which is a camp. It's based around a camp from, it's actually in Canada, but where a lot of Michigan people go to. I never saw that one. I did a movie called Poison Ivy. There's another movie called Poison This one was a movie of the week with Michael J. Fox. And I played the head counselor of the camp. We were shooting in rural Georgia and the temperature was 100 degrees. And this is the children, actors, they actually refused to work. Uh, it reminds me of Gary Goldberg, who was a really interesting man. Among other things, he produced Family Ties. And I was doing a guest uh, role and he incredibly successful Brooklyn boy who became the largest landowner in Vermont or something like that. He said, you ever notice that uh, child acting is slavery? There was a little boy on the show named <laughs> Brian Bonsell. He was four or five years old. And I remember Brian Bonsell on stage. And he was with his tutor and he threw his crayon down and he had to go and work. And when you think about it, it's not, you know, making rugs in India. But if a child, a small child doesn't feel like doing it, you're making him do something he doesn't want to do. The mother was some sort right, of, right, right. you know, a shady divorced lady. It looked like she living off the, the the work of a five-year-old. But it was an interesting observation. Anyway, these kids rebelled and they finally had to get him under control. No, you will work. <laughs> oh, I, I forgot I found this uh, while I was digging around. This was a Time Magazine review of you from They're Playing Our Song. Well, was it any good? <laughs> of course. Yeah, I wouldn't have brought it up if it wasn't good. Oh, Klein, <laughs> Klein has a flair for light comedy that is mightily infectious, and he commands the stage like a pirate sweeping a deck. Nice. Boom. Nice. Yeah, right? Oh, that was, that was cool. oh, great. I mean, years before, my best friend at Yale was Jimmy Burrows, whose father was a Broadway director and writer, and he had directed and written How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Jimmy became the biggest director in California, the biggest TV director. And he co-created Cheers. And I just worked with him at Will & Grace. He used to take me to the show all the time. I saw it 10, 12 times. And the way Bobby Morse, who just died uh, at 90 or so, he was on Mad Men. He played the old boss. Right, 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 right. He could turn his head and get a huge laugh. I said, someday I'd love to do that. And the Neil Simon lines was so strong. And my own instincts, you know, that it was just wonderful. And, you know, a Saturday night. Well, it was packed every night. I mean, my my comps, they weren't comps. I had access to four house seats every night. I had to surrender them if I wasn't going to use them. The theater, there wasn't an empty seat for my entire year, you know, which is uh, not usual. Uh, it was very thrilling. There's nothing like live theater, but from the actor's point of view, it just can become so difficult and tedious. When you do a movie uh, or film television, you do several takes, but that's different. It's segmented, so you have to keep in mind as a film actor what the totality looks like, that you, you're doing this scene which takes place chronologically after instead of before and so forth. Right, right, right. And also, a lot uh, of planning you must... Goes into that. Let the camera do do the work. In other words, you got to be control your face, less mugging, and you know, in stage you want to be big, and also that to put on makeup. I hated it. And most of the films that I do now, there's very little, if any, of that. Television, they still do it, but especially well, playing old men, who the hell needs makeup, though, right? <laughs> right now, in your career, do you like acting, or do you still? Love getting on stage and doing comedy. Well, I haven't been on stage in two years. I have a couple of dates. Unless people are not going to come out, I have uh, two dates. One at Suffolk um, Theater in Riverhead, New York. It's the other one is at Monmouth College, where I once did the commencement and got an honorary degree. I, it should be easy enough. I did it for so many years. Stand-up is always comfortable. I'm not as excited about doing other th camera stuff as I used to be. I mean, it was such a thrill to do early movies and some of the movies. But I like it as variety. I, in terms of my career overall, being versatile, number one, kept me working when I wanted to because I didn't have to. And as an actor, you have to wait around for the next part. And also, it kept me interested. I wasn't stale. Do stand up, you know, even when I, they're playing a song. Once in a while, on a Sunday night, I take a date. Even if I had a charter or a plane, it was worth it to go and do a date on a Sunday night. 
this is the longest I've gone without the guy that directed the documentary about me, Robert Klein, still can't stop his life. Marshall Fine out of Minneapolis. He's been a critic for years and years, and he was the head of the New York Film Critics. They gave him a lifetime achievement. And I got a laugh out of Lady Gaga, although she was very preoccupied with what she was going to say. And she said it a long time. She got an award. <laughs> Comabatch and a bunch of others sent in videos. They were all on location. So when I got up there in front of the audience, I said, I'm so sorry I couldn't be with you tonight. But in a hotel room in Paris, shooting a film about Charles de Gaulle's sister, Harold. <laughs> and, you know, whatever. And I felt so at ease. So I guess that doesn't leave you, you know. That's so funny. When did you record Live at the Bitter End? I just saw that the date of it on Spotify or whatever was like January 2022. I recorded it on my own uh, in, uh, in 1973. Or 72. I remember it cost almost $10,000 to record it beautifully. And then we took it to uh, Neil Bogart, who was head of Buddha Records at the time, which brought Monty Python over, and now for something completely different. And he loved it. He said, I want to do it over again because I hear the tinkling of glasses. I mean, I thought that was authentic. The sound was great. And I called it 50s Child. And he decided to call it Child of the 50s. But we found the tapes recently, and this company that's trying to monetize all the tapes of also Pryor and Carlin and others, I have the advantage of not being dead. <laughs> he found that it was a lot of stuff that wasn't on Child of the 50s, and some of it was done a different way, and so they loved it. And they, they apparently published it on Sirius, I guess. They're dealing a lot with Sirius. There's been a lot of new Robert Klein material that has not been heard on Sirius before. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. I've taken up so much of your time. I thank you so much for for hanging out with me. This was a blast, a real Listen, honor. Make the check out to. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but anyway, it was my pleasure. And uh, the people cleaning my house down near a word so beautiful here today. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope the so boyfriend. Much. You've met the boyfriend. I've met him. Keep a close eye on him, will you? I will. At least I will. boyfriend. <laughs> I have one son, but you know. And he's married 18, 19 years. Well, they say they're married. They didn't go through any emotions. Wait a minute. I guess. <laughs> anyway, it was my pleasure and good luck to you. Thank you so much. I, I guess it's good for me to exercise, you know, to exercise my chops a little. I really didn't do any of my shticks or business uh, bits, but uh, do I remember this one? I, this is an important one. I, I can't stop my leg. I can't stop my leg now. How does a Jew sound like that? It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, anyway, signing off. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. How amazing was Robert Klein? I know, right? Amazing. With his special guest stars, the many birds of New York. I found it kind of peaceful. Very nice chirping. Bring a little outdoors action so wherever you are you can just close your eyes and enjoy the ambiance and robert klein it was so cool hearing him talk about legends like lenny bruce and jonathan winters and rodney dangerfield his time at second city being on one of those early saturday night live episodes the many tv shows he's been a part of or almost been a part of anyway it was an honor having one of the most prolific comedians of our time on the show i got spilkies I got to say, I had reached out to Robert Klein and I hadn't heard for a while. So I thought, oh, okay, maybe it just won't happen. And then one day I'm in my kitchen and the phone rings and the caller ID says Robert Klein. And I'm like, holy beep. And I'm like, oh my God. And so it's Robert Klein calling me to set up a time so we can have the interview together. It was uh, quite exhilarating, I have to say. Because it's like one thing when you're talking to someone during an interview, it's another thing when you're just talking to somebody. It's I can't explain the difference, but there is a difference. And so it was, you know, I said, <laughs> like, oh, my God, I'm talking to Robert Klein. So anyway, it was fun. It was cool. Anyway. All right. Well, with the interview over, it can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Follow Hashtag Roundup on Twitter at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free Hashtag Roundup app at the iTunes App Store or Google Play Store. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. 
fame, and fortune await you. Today's hashtag, inspired by Robert Klein's co-stars during the interview, the many birds of New York, comes hashtag bird bands. Yes, I could have gone with a comedy hashtag, but hey, you know, let's mix it up a bit. Hashtag bird bands brought to you by Friday Fondue, one of the longest running weekly games on hashtag roundup with Casey and E Fox Band. Hashtag bird bands, the ultimate mashup of birds and bands bringing us the best in musical foul or something like that. All right, time to rattle off some hashtag bird bands. And as always, these will be retweeted at Jeff Dwoskin Show on Twitter. Also, Hashtag classic conversation birds. That challenge still is out there for you. Tweet one of those birds from the interview. Tweet your own hashtag bird bands. Tag at Jeff Dewaskin show and I will show you some Twitter love. All right, let's get to it. Hashtag bird band tweets. The Blue Jay Giles Band. Beak 182. Don Henley. You get it? You see how hashtag bird bands just comes together for amazing, hilarious bird band mashups. Steely Rodan, Men Without Beaks, Jefferson Starling, Nine Finch Quails. All right, that's a twofer. Finch and Quails. Nice job there, Flamenco. Speaking of which, the Flamingo Goes, the Dodos, Catbird Stevens, Cage Against the Machine, hashtag bird bands. At its finest, the Smashing Pelicans. Cheap, cheap trick. And our final hashtag bird bands tweets, the Spice Gulls. Don't you wish your bird was hot like me? What? Okay. Hashtag. <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist. All right. Check those all out at Jeff Jawaskin Show on Twitter. Well, with the hashtag game over and the interview over, it can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 146 has come to a close. I want to thank my special guest, Robert Klein. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations.